This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Thank you for joining me. Relay Graduate School of Education was founded in 2011 and its first class graduated in 2013. An Education Next reporter, June Kronholz, visited the school and wrote about it in 2012 when it had only 206 students at a New York campus and 64 students at a Newark campus. Today, according to its broadsheet, it has 5,000 educators involved in 18 different campuses in states across the country, going all the way to California and all across the South, the Midwest, and of course, the Northeast where it began. I have with me today, Laquit Manning, head of the teacher preparation program at Relay's Memphis campus. Laquit, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. Happy to be here. Well, Relay is a new graduate school of education that's barely 10 years old. And how's it faring at a time when COVID is disrupting higher education across the United States and many colleges and graduate schools are in trouble? How, how's it surviving? Yeah, so thanks for that, Paul. I think given that we are infants in this higher institution world, we've been able to pivot quickly. Um, fortunately, in Relay, we've already, we'd already begun to do lots of online offerings. And so our instructors were prepared to pivot um, to more of a full online experience, a high quality experience for teachers and leaders. Um, so um, the pandemic, though challenging, has still been very um, something that we can overcome and relay because of our experience. Well, let's go back before COVID. If, you, if we can remember those ancient days, <laughs> things weren't normal. Uh, weren't you online at that time as well? Or how, what was the offerings? How did you, how did you, uh, you know, engage with students in, in, that, in that time? Absolutely. So in many of our campuses, there was relative to like a 60-40 experience, right? So we would have um, roughly 60% of that experience in person when we were face-to-face, -face, like the good old days. Um, and 40% of that experience was asynchronous. And so that students were able to move through modules, gain experience or gain um, content knowledge in preparation for in-person. Um, Inside of that 60% in-person experience, um, we were able to still deliver um, what we consider to be a practice-based approach. Um, after COVID, we transitioned that 60% to completely online, but we did not leave behind a practice-based approach um, to blend theory to practice for graduate students. Well, you've already brought up the topic that I was uh, wanting to explore, and that is what is distinctive about Relay uh, first of all, let me ask you, how did you pick such a name? I mean, Relay is not the first name that would come to my mind unless he, Mr. Relay gave you a lot of money and I don't think that was it. How did you pick this name Relay for the name of your school? Absolutely. So one of the things we believe wholeheartedly is that it takes a relay of teachers, right? So it takes this consistent group of teachers over three to five years consistently to give students um, a trajectory toward high academic levels of success. And so we believe that group of teachers year after year gives a student to um, be well positioned to show evidence of mastery and proficiency. Um, so we pass the baton. So we prepare teachers from each grade level to pass the baton to the next grade level, to the next grade level, to the next group of teachers. And so inevitably we create a relay of good teachers. Uh, okay, well, that's, that's a great concept. Uh, passing the baton 
making sure that you're cooperating together. Now, you say it's practice base. And so could you elaborate? I mean, tell me what's the standard, from your perspective, what's the standard way uh, an undergraduate program in education, which is preparing teachers to go into classrooms, how do they, how do, they do it? What's, what's, the, what's the way that really Relay founders said wasn't just the way they wanted to do it. They want to do something different. So what is that standard way as you as you see it? So from lived experience as an undergraduate major in education and then going on to graduate school um, to dig even deeper, um, learned a tremendous amount in both my undergraduate and graduate experiences. Um, but it's rooted traditionally in a theory based approach, really. So I'm going into a classroom alongside of a professor. There may be discussion. But primarily, there's lots of lecture there. So there, um, I'm learning concepts. I'm learning about the theorists and those who have grounded what we know and breathe to be education. What Relay does differently inside of this marketplace is to bridge theory to practice. And so, Paul, if you want to learn, if I'm teaching you about what it means to engage students in your classroom, I'm going to give you technical things that you can transfer. I'm going to model that as your instructor. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity to go into a group, even virtually, or even with a partner and practice how to engage a student, how to do a turn and talk, how to do a call and response. Then I'm gonna give you feedback on that particular skill. So we try to nail down the specific thoughts and techniques around teaching, give you feedback on that, and then give you an opportunity to do it again. So bridging, Yes, this is how you engage students in theory. This is what it looks like in person. Now let me see you do it. Let you get feedback on it, then let you do it again, which is remotely different. Well, isn't Relay mainly teaching teachers who are already in classrooms teaching? People who maybe were went in to Teach for America and they arrive at a, at a charter school somewhere and begin teaching in the classroom but they haven't had much experience yet. So you're working with somebody who's in a classroom, but probably needs some, some additional training. Is that, is that, do I have that right? So there's a great blend, Paul. We have teachers who are also what we call resident teachers or aspiring teachers, who this is their first time inside of a classroom. Um, and that residency or our resident teachers get what we consider to be a gradual on-ramp to teaching. So we have both those who are aspiring and then those who are still current teachers of record. And those current teachers of record, their experience spans in maybe from one to three to five years. Uh, but we have found that a practice-based approach still works best for those aspiring and even those current teachers of record. So, uh, you know, apprenticeships have been with us for the middle, since the middle ages. You know, you, you learned how to be a carpenter by becoming a carpenter and working with a carpenter. And so, you're sort of saying let's go let's approach teaching in that way it's a craft I you know I took a, I had a very good colleague at the University of Chicago whose basic idea about teaching was it's a craft it's not a science you don't need to go study theory in order to learn this craft what you need to do is practice your craft is that sort of your idea about how you approach teaching and the instruction of people and becoming an effective teacher certainly you don't learn to ride a bike by talking about it. You've got to get on it. You've got to get on the bike. You've got to put your hands on the handlebars. You've got to put your feet on the pedals. Um, you've got to get up and you've got to 
stand up. You've got to fall and get back down. And what we're able to build inside of our um, experiences in Relay is we practice and we practice on one another. We don't want to do the practice on the students that we serve. We want to do the practice on one another. So we create a culture of error inside of our classrooms as instructors um, so that we practice how do we engage students? How do we respond to them when they're not meeting expectations? How do we engage them? Yeah. So could you give me an example? Let's say you want to teach, uh, I don't know, a poem or a, you know, a short story or something like that. Can you just sort of illustrate this point as to how you work with, with students who are actually teachers or aspiring teachers, how to, how to do that? Yeah. Um, so Paul, even before I even get to the point, the first thing I'm going to always model for students is I'm going to create the conditions for learning. So I'm going to model how I want you um, even virtually to respond. And so I'm going to say, Paul, hey, your camera is on, your mic is muted, and your eyes are on me. Hey, I'm going to just start there because I know the first part of teaching is ensuring that I have an audience that's connected and ready to learn. Then I'm going to model the next part of how I would even open the lesson. So I'm going to probably model how I provide a hook to give students an introduction to what we're learning. I'm going to stop and pause, ask them for feedback on how I'm modeling it and get their opinion on that rooted in um, specific feedback on how to introduce new material. So each part of learning, I'm going to model how to engage. I'm going to model how to respond. I'm going to model how to introduce new material. I'm going to model how to check for understanding, how to ask questions to be able to see if students are learning. And then I'm going to model how do I close that lesson piece by piece over the course of the year. So what if a student doesn't listen? He's wandering off. I just saw my granddaughter uh, being instructed online. And I tell you, I, I, her eyes were wandering all over the place. I don't believe she was listening. Now, my daughter claims she was. So I, I, maybe I misunderstand. How do you tell if they're listening or not, especially in this age of COVID when they're online? You know, Paul, that has been one of the most challenging um, things for all of our teachers. I met with a teacher yesterday afternoon. Um, because some of the schools vacillate about whether students will have their cameras on or cameras off. Um, and we definitely understand that. Um, but one of the ways I monitor or measure whether or not your granddaughter was learning or even my son Maxwell while he's in there right now is over the course of time, I'm gonna create places to check for understanding. And so that may sound like, um, Paul, I'd love for you to share with me in the chat, restate what you just heard. Or it may sound like you have an opportunity to go into a small group. Or it may sound like, guys, I'm about to do a cold call. So I'm about to leverage the energy in our room. And it just may, and since that's a part of our classroom, when I call you, you won't be alarmed. And so there are different ways inside of this space, in person or virtually, that I can still check the pulse and check to see how students are following along. Well, that's a great way to proceed. Now, what did you decide? What must students always have when they're being taught on, on, on Zoom or whatever? Um, do they have to have the camera on or can they have it off? What's the rule here? So I think it varies, right? We um, give teachers, first we tell teachers to follow the guidance that they are um, given from their networks or districts or charter management organizations. I can say personally as a teacher, it is helpful for teach for students to have their cameras on 
so that I can read the room like I would normally read it. But we're also aware this is sensitive for students and for teachers as well. They may not be comfortable with their environments. They may not be comfortable with how things are. And so if your camera is off, I can still create ways and mechanisms, putting it in the chat, using a jam board or using a Nearpod or using ways to still be sure you're coming along in the lesson. So there are ways around it, whether the camera is on or camera is off. Well, I believe that this craft approach to uh, instruction in, in the field of teaching is really the right way to go, but it's not the standard way. It's not what's evolved in these schools of education, and it's not what's being licensed by states. So can Relay license its teacher? Are states willing to give a certification to teachers for the training that they get at Relay? Absolutely. So we are accredited and each one of our campuses in its local um, state um, meets the regulatory guidelines to be able to issue um, along with completing that educator preparation program. And if that student is also passed um, the content or the practices exams, we're able to be sure that we, our teachers are licensed. So in other words, there, you do not have a licensing problem it, there are, are there some states who are unwilling to give you your graduates a license? No. As far as you know, this is uh, this a philosophy has become accepted by the people who are making the decisions on certification and licensing. Certainly. In the state of Tennessee, there are, there are and I would imagine in other states as well, um, alternative pathways. And so like you mentioned, um, for example, Teach for America, and there are, of course, other alternate pathways that states honor um, as an opportunity for teachers to still reach licensure. Um, what we're still proud of, again, is the way that we train teachers, um, the, the way that we embed the coursework and the necessary knowledge they need to provide their, to, to pass their, their exams to also become licensed teachers of record. So what's the tuition? How much do students pay for uh, one year? Uh, let's say there, are they, I, th I know you have a two year program. Yes. Right? And then you have a one year program. So uh, what's, let's talk about the difference between the one year and two year, and then I'll ask about the tuition. Yeah, so um, again, and what, what the, the beauty of again, what we have across Relay is that it varies, right? But in all of our campuses, students are able to, after two years, receive a master, earn a master's of arts in teaching in two years. Um, the cost is extremely competitive across this marketplace. And so when we think about um, walking away with less than $25,000 for a two year master's or graduate experience, um, you will not find there find that experience everywhere um, inside of that two year. And so some of our campuses offer this one year path where students are able to essentially take the one year of an educator preparation program. If they pass their certification exams, then sometimes they will, then they are able to reach, um, be licensed by that state. Um, but twenty five thousand for the for the two year program is that is that a twenty five thousand a year twenty five thousand twenty five thousand and some and it's actually less than twenty five thousand it's less than twenty five thousand yeah but that's still more than it is for lots of state university programs as I would guess that they're 
less than that. So how, how do you recruit your students? How do you find, and, and, do you, and how are you doing in the current environment? Are, are you maintaining your enrollment? That's a great question. So let me also bring out two nuances. So in all of our campuses, we have a residency program which residents are the students that we spoke about earlier who are potentially aspiring teachers. And particularly for those residents, their tuition is subsidized tremendously by AmeriCorps. So their out-of-pocket expense for some of them is significantly less in addition to the district, the network or charter management organization they work for they also will subsidize, they will take care of the rest of it. And so that $10,000 a year for many of our residents ends up being zero for tuition. Then we have a traditional path, again, like our current teachers of record who end up may needing or may pay um, the $10,000 per year, roughly 10,500 per year. Um, and they are, whether they can pay it out of pocket, we work alongside them to be able to get financial aid. What we've noticed this year for enrollment, um, our enrollment has been steady. Um, education has knocked on many doors for those who maybe have not considered it inside of this pandemic. And we have been ready to um, serve them for those who are interested in learning more about how to become an excellent teacher of record. So in your teachers, do you find that they're teaching mainly online or, or are they are they going into the classroom? I know there's a lot of variation across the country and I don't know what it is in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's probably more in-person uh, instruction in Tennessee than in Massachusetts, but, uh, but I don't really know for sure. So how is this varying for your uh, teachers that are in your program? So in, I'll speak directly in Tennessee, in Tennessee and specifically in Memphis, um, our local traditional school district, Shelby County Schools, has been the last school district in Tennessee where students are just about to return back to in-person learning March 1st. Um, so those students have been out since March of last year. And so those teachers who are in Shelby County Schools are just preparing um, to welcome students back in person within the next two weeks. Um, we have some students in our program who are still 100% virtual. We have some students who are doing a hybrid to where they're teaching some students live and teaching some students um, online. Um, so we have a variation, but Tennessee has been, um, it's been an interesting experience most recently for Shelby County Schools for those teachers. So how do you see things going forward? How are the teachers going to manage this transition back to the classroom? Are they uh, what kinds of helps are you providing? How does, this is not something where there's a lot of experience out there. So how do you prepare the students for this, uh, this getting students back to what, back to normal, so to speak? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we've thought about um, in preparation for, particularly for our teachers who will now receive students in person again, their modality of teaching for the, uh, for the significant portion of them will remain the same, which means they will still teach their students online. So the students will still have devices. Those who go back into the school will have their devices and their teachers will still have devices. Um, so their teaching modality will still be the same. Um, 
I'm thankful that many of the teaching practices that we've created inside of our curriculum are transferable, meaning once they welcome students back, we have spent an enormous amount of time about building relationships with students. And so this will be the first time they see them in person, but this would not be the first time that they have begun to learn who they are as people. Um, and now they get a chance to welcome them as people in person. So we've already started to think about the transferable things around building relationships, around how to introduce material, how to check for understanding, how to respond, how to set expectations. It will be different because of their anxiety, because this is new. Um, and so we try to provide space for teachers to really frankly talk about their concerns, their joys, their wins, um, what makes them fretful of going back in person um, so that they have a safe space to think about that and then figure out how to take the techniques and strategies that they're using inside of even now this in-person time. So how do you divide the curriculum up? Uh, I understand that it's practice-based, but you must organize it in some way that you focus on some particular practices in some classes and other practices in other classes. So give, can you tell me the, you know, sort of like the five basic courses that you everybody must take uh, that, that rounds out the curriculum? Yeah, so our curriculum is organized into four dimensions. The four, first dimension is what we consider to be self and other people, where we spend a significant amount of time exploring identity, mindset, bias. Um, what does it take to be a culturally responsive teacher? What does it take um, to investigate who you are and what you bring to the teaching profession in order to be able to serve your students? So we spend time there. We spend time on what we consider again classroom culture. So what are the conditions of a high functioning classroom? So how do you manage that classroom? How do you respond? How do you set expectations? Then we spend time in what we consider to be in content. So to broaden um, or deepen their content knowledge, whether it's in English, in math, in social studies, whatever their specific content is. And then the last portion of that is just the core pedagogy classes, the mechanics of teaching how do you teach? And so that's the fourth dimension. All of those things are in service to student growth and achievement. All of those dimensions of how we organize our curriculum. And so we have a broad approach um, with all four of those dimensions in order for students to be successful. I hope I answered your question, Paul. Oh, and that's a good, that's a good answer. It does help me. Uh, but now, how do you distinguish between elementary school and secondary school. It seems to me that there's somewhat different issues and maybe middle school is still another. So, yeah, so do you have, uh, you know, uh, classes that are appropriate to somebody who's going into one or another level? Yeah, so our, um, I can speak locally um, as, and also more broadly. Our content classes, so for example, for that teacher who is in social studies or history or in the sciences and physics and chemistry, um, those classes are going to be definitely designated to learning the content of their instruction, right? To deepen their content knowledge in there. When we think about the mechanics of teaching, meaning how do I introduce this lesson? How do I measure and monitor student progress along the way? How do I close a lesson? That's agnostic of elementary, middle, or high school. That's just good teaching. When we think about expect or creating classroom culture, one could argue a high school student doesn't want their teacher to love on them or show that type of love. I contend that's not true. High school students still want the same type of trust, 
relationship building, not only do they want it, they need it. The same level of trust, relationship building, clear expectations as an elementary student. That's agnostic. And then the other portion of our curriculum of self and other people, elementary to high school, each teacher has to go on a journey to explore their identity, their mindsets around teaching so that they can be able to serve those students elementary through high school. That's agnostic. Um, so I find the most differentiation in content when we are thinking about those elementary, middle and high school teachers. That's where I see the largest differentiation happening. Well, when June Kronholz wrote about uh, Relay uh, about a decade ago, she said that, well, at least the story is a lot about how you prepared people for the state exams, for the, you know, uh, these assessments that uh, were, would come out at the end of the year and, and uh, whether these tests were any good and how you got students to, to uh, prepare for them. And in some ways I said to myself, well, is Relay just a test preparation kind of program or is there more to it than that? So let me ask you that question. Has that, is that a big emphasis at, at Relay or has that declined in importance? Of, can you give me some insights into that? Absolutely. Um, it, is, it is an emphasis. It is not the emphasis. So do we ask teachers to teach with the end in mind? Absolutely. Is it important for us to know how students um, will be held, uh, what, what students need to know by the end of the year? Absolutely. Is that the only thing that we are concerned about? No. So we're concerned about an entire student's experience. But is it the central or the only thing no, but we do give students or give our, I would say students now as a graduate students, um, these techniques and strategies necessary to determine how students are showing evidence of progress. Um, I think that teachers and leaders are in a very precarious situation when we think about high stakes testing and high levels of accountability. Um, we're asking for high levels of innovation, but yet we have a draconian accountability system um, that puts them in a very, very um, uncomfortable situation. Um, that's just my own personal thought. That's not a relay thought. So we try to teach teachers to be critical consumers of what they're learning so they can still see evidence of success for in outcomes. So what do you see as the future for Relay? Are you expect the campuses to expand? Are you, is it, is it in an, still in an expansionist mode? Have you achieved the level you wanted to achieve? Do you feel like yourself sustaining at this point? Uh, when June Connells wrote that piece a decade ago, she said, well, they're very dependent upon philanthropy, but they've got to become self-sustaining over the long run. How do, how do you, uh, 10 years later, what can you tell us? So Relay is here to stay. We are fortifying what this next chapter looks like um, with thoughtfulness around um, how are we um, using philanthropy? How are we weaning ourselves from philanthropy? How are we continuing to grow and expand our student base? How are we leveraging the assets in our communities? I can speak locally in Memphis. Um, we've been very fortunate to still continue to find partners who um, appreciate the way that we teach teachers how to teach. Um, and so throughout the institution, we are um, leveraging 
the strength that we have in our local um, context um, to be able to say, hey, we are here to stay. You need us. We need you. Um, and so we're we're working on this next chapter of Relay. Well, how's your how are your alumni? Are you keeping in touch with alumni? Is that an important part of the um, way in which you become a self-sustaining uh, new uh, graduate school? You know, our alumni is strong. We have what we consider something called Relay Connect. Um, so it's immediately once students are, once students graduate, it's a network that they can join. Um, you can look and A, become a mentor yourself, B, offer support in whatever current position that you're in, um, be able to lend a hand to those inside of the Relay Network who are alum to help them to network with other places if they're looking for other positions or places um, to move to. Um, so our alumni network is continuing to grow and expand. Um, but I think one of the ways that we're growing, um, Paul, I'll just speak again locally, when you do good things, good things follow you, right? And so when people say, hey, I went to Relay, tell me about your experience. It was amazing. My professors, my advisors were right there with me. The word of mouth still helps us even inside of this space. There's still six degrees of separation, I believe. Um, and so what we say matters and how we treat people matters. And that's why we're gonna continue to be here. Well, thank you very much, uh, Lakeith, for uh, sharing your experiences at uh, the Memphis campus uh, of Relay University. It's been great speaking with you this morning. Thank you, Paul. It's been great. This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I've been speaking with Lakeith Manning, head of the teacher preparation program at the Memphis campus of Relay University. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.